We are back. It's been a great pleasure on Radio Parallax to be able to interview people from the neighborhood. We've done this on many occasions. Uh, I had a, a neighbor, neighborly lawyer come over and talk about lawyering and a neighbor, neighboring archaeologist come over and talk about archaeology. And We had Lino Carollo some years back talk about working at Aerojet General when they were building rockets that were going to take men to the moon. Uh, someone else we've had the pleasure to interview in the past is my neighbor, John Lissack, who's talked about um, the fact that he was able to participate in the 1936 Olympics that were in Berlin, rather famously. NBC News found their way to John uh, a while back and talked about this same fascinating subject. And uh, I think it's time we, we talked about stuff again, maybe the Olympics, but there's so much more. John participated in the war effort during World War II and has some stories regarding that I hope he will tell. So um, it is our great pleasure to be able to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, John Lissack. Well, John, I want to note for our listeners that you had a birthday last month. And uh, by God, it was your 105th birthday. 105. Yeah, you were born in 1914, the first year of World War One. Yeah. We yeah. should remind our listeners that, um, well, the truth is you haven't had the easiest life, but I always appreciate the fact that you said, uh, you know, you just got to keep a good attitude, and, and by God, you, you seem to always have. Uh, but tragically, back in 1918, there was a worldwide epidemic of the flu. It possibly... Uh, took more lives than than the war did, than World War One did. Yeah, that took my mom. Yeah, your mom. Yeah, I felt bad about her leaving, but I found out that the Catholic Church has a habit of people kissing the uh, crucifix, and a diseased person kisses, and and the kids go up to church, kiss the cross, crucifixion, and it's a perfect transfer. Oh, my God. Do you think that's what happened? Oh, yeah. Oh, my. I know it. I saw it. At five years old, I was smart enough not to kiss. I could see spit. Somebody's kissing, spitting. As a five-year-old, I knew better. Now, that takes me back, John, to when I was a child, and we went over to one of these uh, the Holy Ghost events they had over in Newark, and they did pass around a little... A dove of some kind, and, and everybody was supposed to kiss it. And I remember my sister looking askance, like, I don't want to kiss that thing. And she yeah. came home and told my mother, and my grandmother kind of shot her a look, like, you know, you're supposed to kiss this. And, and my mom told her, you know, don't do that. You don't have to do that. Yeah. A very bad habit of, of, of the church. Yeah, they still do it. I guess they do. I, I got a neighbor, uh, Laurie. She's a good Catholic. Runs the wild. We discussed it, and, and, I, <laughs> and I, t I said to her, you, you put your faith in a guy, and he couldn't protect his own son. <laughs> How's he going to help you? I had a bad experience as a kid. My mom died, yeah. and uh, my dad had four children. So uh, the church helped him, and uh, a lady came and, and took care of the house until... Dad found us a, an orphanage. Yeah. And it was a Catholic orphanage. Okay. And it's the worst place I have been <laughs> in my life. I mean, they treated the, the kids like toys. Oh, my. You, you grab a kid and, 
and drag him around. It's a kid on roller skates who dragged this uh, little uh, four-year-old or five-year-old, drag him around on a, on a pavement, you know. Well, was he being punished for wearing roller skates? Nobody punished anybody. There were no adults there. Oh, so the kids took care of the kids. Kids took care of the kids. Wow. And it was it's terrible, yeah. That's where I first learned to talk to the, the friends that suffer with you. And I said to them, these guys are coming over to grab one of us. Grab him and bite him. Don't bite a pig. <laughs> Not a big bite, a little bee sting bite. And that's what make him really remember. A big bite, you can't hurt him. Too much clothing and whatnot. We got to doing that, and pretty soon they start leaving us alone. Wow. It works. So the little kids, you and the little kids were biting the big kids just, yeah. just, just to get them to off put, your case. Yeah, to give them, protect ourselves. I, I was the one that, that thought it. Even though we got hurt, we got that bite. Uh-huh. And, and it made you feel good. And it made him remember he's going to get a bee sting. Well, I, I remember you telling stories uh, about how, you know, it, it wasn't easy in the orphanage, but a lot of times uh, people would come by and donate different types of food, and and uh, I, I gather that sometimes they make them in with a big old load of lima beans, and that's what your kids ate for the next few days. The Catholic orphanage, you didn't know what you're going to get to eat. The church didn't buy any food. The citizens in town got the stuff that was going to go bad, couldn't sell it. Yeah. And then that's what we got to eat. Okay. Uh, after that orphanage, I went to a, another orphanage, and this one was developed by the wives of the generals of uh, the Revolutionary War. Oh, the Daughters of the American Revolution? Yeah. The, the D.A.R.? All these uh, wives of the generals got together. There was all so many widows with children that needed care. And they bought uh, uh, a bunch of property and uh, started what was called the, the New York Orphanage Asylum. Their mothers uh, had a place to eat and sleep. Well, that kind of an orphanage, there was 10 cottages, uh -huh. and there was 20-something kids in each cottage. And there was a, 150 boys and 100 girls, all in, in different cottages. Wow. And uh, uh, it, 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 the kids learned to do everything. And I was cooking dinner, 21 people. They, everybody went to church. Two of us stayed, and we cooked dinner uh -huh. and made ice cream for Sunday. I was only 15 years old. It's a label to make a whole meal like that and make ice cream. And the kid learned to do anything and everything that I needed to do. We had a garden, and we, we raised vegetables. And they had an orchard. They had fruit, apples and pears and peaches. And this place was a, a heaven on earth because they learned. It sounds like that was, you know, a positive that came from a negative. I mean, certainly it was tough to be stuck in an orphanage, but, but it sounds like you guys really developed some life skills. Yeah. Before I, I finished high school, I was living up in the gatehouse with the painter boss. I had 
learn to paint houses. Okay. Plaster and paint and live up there in the gatehouse. And so when I finished all the, the work uh, that I had to do, I had a paper route. And I delivered uh, a boot, uh, 42 papers in town. I walked to Hastings. The high school was in Hastings. I walked to Hastings. Then I walked into town and I went to the place where I picked up my papers and, and delivered. And I had 42 papers. How far did you have to walk? Uh, two and a half miles just to get to town. And then the, the first paper that I had was 42 papers. It was right in town. I was finished in 30 minutes. <laughs> it was that close. But then they offered me this this other route that nobody wanted. And it was on the outskirts of town. You had a bicycle for that one, didn't you? Yeah, I, after the first two months, <laughs> I had a, uh, enough money to buy a used bike. Okay. And then I bought a, a set of tires. And when I bought the tires, I put them on. The bike had a, a, a meter, a mild meter. Okay. And so I rode it down, and I made the route, but in-town route, and then out-of-town route, and came home. And when I got back to the Graham School, I had a job to deliver the hand ironing to the different cottages. Whatever day it was, that cottage got... Then I went back to, to my cottage and had my dinner, then I went up to the gatehouse and my homework. But then I was free. I went to town and I, I, I joined the canoe club. How far did you go on, on, on the bike when you were doing this route? Was oh, it a long, long from, ride? From home to meter to both routes and came back home 12 miles. Okay. And I used to walk it. Oh, my. Until my, I got, oh, my. Until I got my bike. Then I had so much time, I sneaked down the river and go for a swim. <laughs> so this is, you, you got into biking, and I guess you became quite an accomplished bicyclist. So much so that people got interested in you on a bike and wanted to, I understand, test out some different products and see how you did. Yeah. They had an experiment in college, and uh, it was a bike experiment. Okay. And uh, they were testing Knox Gelatin. <laughs> it was a government uh, test, and they used the college because the, the the athletes were there, and they were it was all voluntary. They were testing how, how the, the performance enhancing ability of Knox gelatin. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is seventy five percent pure protein gelatin. Protein. It's protein, but it's not a good protein because they make it from. Animal hides. <laughs> it's it's not a high quality protein. Yeah, but it but, but it's, it's it's good for I guess they they I know they sell it for enhancing people's nails, yeah. your your nails and your hair. Well, anyway, this is a bike experiment. They had three bikes, and they had a, a scientist timing you when you got on. You, you rode it twenty five miles an hour, and a ten pound. A resistance on the brake, and you rode as long as you could every day. 
twice a day. You rode once, and you stopped, and you took a five-minute rest, and drank the gelatin. Okay. If you got it, third of them didn't get it they were ever. The, they were the controls. Yeah. 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 Uh, the first day I rode, I was I was the only guy that broke a minute. How the hell do you do that? You know, I said I rode a bike every day. Yeah, why not? Yeah, but anybody that rides a bike knows that 25 miles an hour is pretty fast. Yeah. And that's with today's 10 speeds. You were you were you were riding a bike back in the 20s, probably a one-speed bike, right? Yeah. But see, the 10-pound uh, weight on the brake gives you a lot of resistance. Yeah. So, so how the hell did you do that? You you did it for as long as you could every day. You're going to ride for 20 weeks. Seven days a week for 20 weeks. That's one of the things that the, the doctor, Karpovich, that was running it, he says, the thing that amazes me, the guy only advanced a quarter of a second, but nobody in that group ever fell backwards. Every time they rode, they gained something. Huh. He was amazed. Nobody, and we got sick. We did what we, what you did as a college student. This was spare time, see. Uh huh. Well, at the at the end of twenty weeks, I was at the, the head of the table, rode eight minutes. The nearest guy to me was three minutes away. Eight minutes. Eight minutes at twenty-five miles an hour with a ten-pound. Yeah. Jeez. Holy mackerel. Well, well, no wonder you were future Olympic material. Yeah. You must have had quite a metabolism. Yeah, I did. I, I had uh, a pretty good lifestyle as a child in that orphanage. I think that was my greatest achievement in athletics, yeah. was that 20 weeks of riding the bike. I guess. So somewhere along the way, you were uh, a young man, you graduated high school, you were pretty good on a bicycle, and then you you found your way to the, the private rowing club, was it? Yeah, uh, canoe club. Canoe club. Canoe, yeah. I, I, I got on a rowing team at college, and uh, but I didn't have good grades. I, I was a, a C, <laughs> and, and they wouldn't let me uh, compete. But I practiced, uh, and... Uh, Really, so the school uh, wouldn't let you compete, but you were able to go to this private club. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. My partner, Jimmy O'Rourke, I didn't meet him until I went to the canoe club. And we, we just raced with anybody until we found somebody that we liked, you know, became partners. What was the name of this club? The Yonkers Club? What was it called? The uh, Yonkers Canoe Club. Because I know we looked on the internet, we were able to find a picture of all you young men uh, in, in the canoe club. It, it's, it's available on the internet. The sad part is, when I came to California, we bought a house and I had a barn. So I painted the house, I put everything in the barn, and then uh, caught fire and lost all my treasures. Pictures did survive, because we were able to print one up. Yeah. Which is kind of nice. Yeah. This club... I guess must have been must have been doing pretty well. How did you get hooked up with the Olympic Committee? How, how did you get a chance to try out for the Olympics? Well, they didn't. They had a, a, a trials in 1932. 
Okay. In Los Angeles. Okay. They had a demonstration. So in 32, it wasn't an official sport, well, but it was going to be in 36. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we talked about this before. You, you wind up making the team. You went over to Berlin, and uh, I, guess, I guess the Nazi regime over there wasn't exactly playing fair with some of the competitors. This event that in was the first time they had kayaks, and the kayak was a, a, a favorite sport. So every day you went and you got a new kayak, assembled it, and raced it. You competed in canoe. Yeah. Two-man canoe. Yeah, in canoes. I'd like to have been in in the on a rowing team, but the college uh, had one. But uh, the guys that that were there were years ahead of you. They they kind of had an edge on anybody that was a stranger. Well, there's that book out. It sold a lot of copies. The boys in the boat. The book talks about how they were just getting by these poor kids from the University of Washington. But the truth of the matter is, those guys had it a lot better than you, than you than you did. You yeah. didn't have the support they did. Yeah. Well, I, I talk about Berlin. These days, you know, athletes they have, they have their own shoes, their own this, their own that, and they they take it over when they compete. Uh, it sounds like when you got over there, the Hitler, the Nazis, more or less said, "This is your boat." So yeah. they they could they they had a chance to give you you know not the best boat, which I which I with like it sounds like they did. The thing is, uh, in the kayaks, uh, they had the, the regular canoe races, a separate, but uh, the kayaks, the, the, the com competition, all had the same thing. You all went and got a, a new boat every day, assembled it, and raced it. Well, that sounds like that was a big disadvantage. Well, that's what it was all about. The, how do you handle something new? It's it's not what you're used to, so it's harder. Yeah, but uh, it was fair in the sense that everybody got a new boat every day, assembled it, okay. and raced it, and turned it in at night. Yeah, that's... So th this Olympics is still pretty famous. I mean, Hitler was uh, putting a showcase on in Berlin, and uh, and he was trying to show you know, all his Nazi ideals. It's very famous about, about Jesse Owens showing up Hitler, and I... And I guess you had a chance to talk to Jesse Owens a little bit on the boat on the way over. When when we left Germany, we were on the boat with Jesse, but the top team was going to get off in England and have a meet in England. Okay. I met Jesse and talked quite a while with him. And I asked him, uh, you know, uh, that insult that uh, Hitler put on him, you know, I said, does it bother you or are you used to it? He says, I'm, I'm used to it. He says, it makes him look stupid. And it doesn't bother me because I'm expecting it. See? Jesse was quite a guy. Speaking of England, uh, just fast forwarding a little bit, your brother was also interested in, in, uh, in, in these aquatic sports. I guess they missed two Olympics. They missed the 40 Olympics and the 44. They resumed again in London in 48. And your brother was able to uh, to compete, and I guess he won a silver and he won a gold. He raced in a in a boat called a Canadian. It's a wooden boat, special size and shape, and everything. He built one, made it to specifications. Okay. And raced it in the in the, the forty eight Olympics, 
have won. He was able to use his boat, though, in 48. Yeah. Un unlike you. Yeah. I gather during the 1930s you were learning to be a painter, but World War II came along and, and you, got, uh, you, got, you got involved. I was working uh, in Springfield, Massachusetts for uh, Westinghouse. Okay. And we were making uh, a secret weapon. It's a, it's a gun stabilizer. It had a gyro. I went to work for them, and I made them. And so when, when the service accepted it, five of us went to Washington for an interview at the Marine Corps. And they sent us home, and they said they would let us know. Well, they tell us to go to the recruiting office and sign up. Okay. And uh, then they would call you when they wanted you. You went, you signed up one day, you come back the next day, and you signed. So you went private to corporal, and the third day you went, they made you a sergeant. But none of this would work if you didn't make it through boot camp. They put you through boot camp as a Marine, but they were interested in what you were doing working for the gun stabilizer. Yeah. They weren't going to have you storm the beach. They were going to put you to work on this on this top secret program. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. So I guess if you're going to drive a tank and you got to aim the tank, you got to have some kind of way to stabilize your gun. Yeah. Or you're going to be you're going to be a pretty lousy shot. It was a, a guaranteed. You could hit your target nine out of ten times. Wow. Guaranteed. That what you were working on saw service in the uh, in, in the uh, in the um, the tanks of World War Two. I had experience in well in uh, New Zealand. I got blisters. I was working unloading ammunition at night, twelve hours, and uh, my feet hurt. So I went to uh, the doctor at noontime or midnight, and uh, he saw the blisters on my feet, and uh, had the intern make a donut. For each blister, went home that night. I I did the treatment because I I made blisters when I was paddling. I learned something, and nobody knew. You take that the blister, and you take a needle, yeah, and you go from the good flesh, okay, to the water of the blister, okay. You pressure the water and put it out and drain it out through that good flesh and and pull the needle out and a good flesh is a valve. The vacuum that you made by by losing the water sucked that skin back where it belonged. So you learn from just practicing your on yourself with your blisters that if you do this you can you can internally drain your own blisters. They didn't teach me this in med school by the way. I took that, that message from the the doctor Wrote it, wrote it up at the end, and it was put in on the medical. Your technique got written up in the medical journal? Yeah. Oh, my God. That, not with that's hilarious. My not my name on it. His, his name. name on it. His name. <laughs> yeah. it, it, worked, it worked out for me. Right. I, I didn't mind. He learned how to do it, taught military medicals how to do it. You must have heard us, did you? No. Never. This was lost along the way by the time uh, the time I got to medical school. Necessity 
is a Muslim invention. Something that you learn something, you use it to, you don't publish it to make a dollar. Uh-huh. Nowadays, they do that. They, if if it uh, gets popular, you publish it and, and try to make a buck. Well, you were in Hawaii and New Zealand for a lot of the time? Oh, yeah, I left New Zealand and, and moved to Hawaii. I spent uh, uh, 18 months in Hawaii, nine months in New Zealand. So I was overseas 27 months when the war ended. So I was in the first group that was sent home. How'd you wind up in California? Was on the way home you came through here? I got back to Springfield, and all the graduates had all the jobs. Uh-huh. I'd have to go back to school for a year to get in the swing of it, and I couldn't afford it, not with a, a no job, you know. I went to work as a painter. I knew how to paint. Mm-hmm. And I bought this house, and, and then the barn burned, and I lost all my treasures. I stayed there. Then the town went broke. So I, one of the guys I worked with and fished with he talked to somebody on the phone in the city. He said, I got a job. Let's uh, sign out and, and, and go to work in the city. So we drove in and, and uh, went to work. I got a place to live. So you wound up in the peninsula at some point down there in, was it Milbrae or somewhere? Yeah, I, that's when, uh, when I, uh, I got a job in in the... San Bruno, which is next to Milbrae. The guy, my wife, had a friend, Bill Morrison, who was a builder, put me to work. My useful training at the Graves School was the biggest adventure in my life. Because I learned to do anything you wanted to do. Sure. You could make a study of it and, and learn to do it. You just had the enthusiasm. They go study it and learn to do it. If something is broke, learn how it was put together and learn how to fix it and you learn how to make a better one, you know. But you had to you had to have the enthusiasm yeah. to do it. And that's what life is about, is how much enthusiasm I have. Well, you've learned to do an awful lot of things over your years. You're very content with life. You've always had a good attitude, and that's, that's everything. Yeah. Our thanks to John for speaking with us. It's hard to imagine the things one would have seen unfold before him if you were born in 1914. Our friend Gordon Smith's grandmother lived to 112. She passed away, I'm thinking, about a decade ago, which would put her year of birth something like 1897. She was asked by her family late in life what single thing she could cite that was the most impressive out of all the innovations uh, that, that had come her way. Gordon asked me once, and what, what, do you, what do you think she said to that? And I said, I don't know, the electric light? He said, no, she liked, she liked the light. She thought that was pretty cool. But far and away, the thing that was the greatest innovation that she'd encountered in her lifetime was dot, 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 indoor plumbing. And have to admit, if you've ever had to go gather water in a pail or use an outhouse, particularly in a colder climate like Canada, where she was raised, it's easy to see the value of having water inside your house. 
Sadly, these days in our tech-driven industry, we've come to conclude that uh, while it used to be said that necessity was the mother of invention, these days it seems that invention is the mother of necessity. We're thinking about bringing on the program in the weeks to come someone who's invented something that, uh, well, we just think is really remarkable. Very, very high-tech. We're talking in this instance about the smart shovel. A shovel which will tell you the temperature of the earth, its degree of compactness, your GPS coordinates so you can dig a trench with great precision. Pretty fascinating concept. We're just not clear that techies know what a shovel actually is. We're thinking about looking into it. Anyway, this program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening, of course, to Radio Parallax. We're looking forward to a chat on next week's program with our pal James Diogenio. It's always interesting when you find official government pronouncements telling you that, no, that's not true. No, it's just not true. There's no way that's not true. That's silly. That's ridiculous. No, no, not true. And you stumble upon a document that says, oh, looks like that is true. That should be fun. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week.